Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Concessions, where Dan and I dig into the work of Ralph Bakshi, perhaps the only American auteur to devote his entire career to making animated films exclusively for adults. We're specifically here to talk about his 1981 film, American Pop, a movie that's totally fascinated me since my teen years and has influenced the work of artists ranging from Richard Linklater to Kanye West and many, many more. This episode was an early recording for us, which is evidenced by quite the proliferation of vocal tics, mostly from myself, as well as the occasional background noise in the form of a barking dog or police siren, which actually ends up being pretty on brand for a movie primarily taking place on the busy streets of New York City. Be sure to join us again next week, where we'll be going full cage rage talking about 2018's Mandy, directed by Panos Cosmatos. If you can think of any more American filmmakers pushing the boundaries of animation by making only feature films for adults, be sure to at me on threads where you can find me under Jared Concessions. Dan can be found cavorting around the remnants of the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, where he goes by Dan Concedes. Please don't forget to like, rate, follow, or otherwise designate Concessions as a podcast you enjoy wherever you happen to be listening to this. And please allow Dan and I to welcome you to our conversation about Ralph Bakshi's strikingly unique American pop. Welcome to Concessions, the podcast. I'm Dan. And I'm Jared. Today we're going to talk about sex, drugs, rock and roll, and cartoons. And the uncanny valley. A lot of the uncanny and grotesque uh, approximations <laughs> of both the human form and soul. Oh, um, unexpectedly before, wise. Before we get into the film, what are we drinking? What do you got over there in that, that little got, can? Uh, one of my friends is a uh, beer distributor, and he had way too much sitting in the back of his trunk. So he let me steal a bunch last weekend. So, oh, like it was like a whole truck, like the whole bed of a pickup truck full oh, my God. of various beverages. I this don't have one, any friends like that. Get better friends. I don't know what to tell you. Introduce uh, me to yours. <laughs> some classic ranch water, but it is a uh, watermelon agave ranch water with a little, you see the little Frenchie. Mm. Oh, so a little, little watermelon, a little agave, a little tequila, and a lot of sparkling water, basically. Yeah, it's real nice. Yeah, that it sounds great. You put up at a store near you, folks. I've got a Guinness again, but this time just a pint, and uh, it's almost finished, and this just is going to be one? my only one. Only it a the, it's the only I only had one left. I've been nursing the same eight pack of of Guinness uh, pint cans uh, since like a couple days after St. Patty's. So I don't drink much. I've literally had like eight beers in the last two weeks, essentially. Coward. Yeah, I'll I'll up my game soon enough here. Um, this week, though, we are talking about Ralph Bakshi's American Pop 
from 1981, who, which was uh, directed by Ralph Bakshi, who, you know, as director and also serves as kind of the animation supervisor, so to speak. Um, I don't, I don't think he was like the main animator of the film, but he certainly uh, uh, kind of supervised the the animation because this movie is very much the in the Ralph Bakshi aesthetic with like some really extreme rotoscoping, which we'll talk a little bit more about for sure. This one was not written by Ralph Bakshi. It was written by Ronnie Kern, who gets the screenwriting credit. But uh, I assume just given that, you know, the the level of auteur that Bakshi was at the time and uh, just how much this movie sort of reflects Bakshi's own life and upbringing, I assume that he uh, uh, would have some kind of story credit or, or the like. This was the last feature film that was written by Ronnie Kern, pretty hmm. much settled into writing for TV uh, after this. So, yeah, I, I imagine that that even though Bakshi isn't the, the credited writer, that he he likely wrote the movie. I have a lot of fingerprints um, on it, at the very least. Just a little background here. Uh, this was Ralph Bakshi's sixth movie. All all uh, feature length animated films. This is his sixth movie in about ten years. So in animation terms, that is ludicrous speed. As Especially far as bef- this is more computers and stuff too. Oh yeah, these are these are hand drawn movies. Um, well, for the most part, we'll get into the kind of the techniques that Bakshi employed and really helped uh, kind of bridge popularity for. Uh, with these movies just be due to kind of time and budgetary constraints. He had a lot to say and he wanted to say it fast. <laughs> and uh, he chose the slowest medium with which to do it without huge budgets. Uh, you know, he wasn't, didn't have a, a Disney budget on these pictures. So uh, he really employed the, like a really deep form of rotoscoping. So like, rotoscoping for folks who don't know, that's basically when a live action image has been traced over colored over even beyond just animated movies the technique is used a lot in visual effects to kind of create superimpositions over over your live action shots or like you know, like adding like matte art matte paintings to your uh, to your compositions but as far as uh, animation goes is kind of a trick that has existed for about as long as anim- you know animation has existed as far as kind of cutting a corner to not draw hand draw every single cell from scratch so kind of using uh live action as at the very least a reference point or at the very most literally just taking actual <laughs> live action and just coloring it which uh, we don't see a lot in this movie but it's something that Bakshi had to do a couple movies before this one on Wizards when he ran out of money, still had to make his big action scenes uh, exist. And so literally just shot them on film and colored them, didn't even trace over them or kind of hand draw over them, just just added like sort of his signature color palette kind of artificially to create some of the battle scenes. He really upped the ante on that a year or two later with his Lord of the Rings adaptation. Mm -hmm. So after he had all that experience on wizards kind of doing those those epic fantasy sci-fi type of battle sequences he's like well i guess i can actually do the lord of the rings which uh before ralph Bakshi did it was considered unfilmable 
and after Ralph Bakshi did it, it was still considered unfilmable. But then American Pop, he uh, kind of returned to his roots. He, he he started off his career making these kind of urban or street level movies about mostly disenfranchised people or anthropomorphic animals in New York City. And this movie was sort of like an amalgamation of his entire career up to this point. It had the the like his style as far as the actual animated aesthetic with the rotoscoping was really dialed in, but he kind of returned to something more personal and you know less fantastical with this movie. So this is uh, a movie that is really um, probably the most it's the Ralph Bakshi movie that contains the most of his fingerprints on it. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, oh, and er, what it's about. Um, oh, so, right. Yeah. Uh, what's the movie about? Uh, if you yeah. So it's about, it's about five oh, generations. For the record, this was uh, Jared's pick. Yeah. Um, and also I'll give a little bit of a plot in my history with the movie and uh, your history as you watched it for the first time days ago. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not a very plot heavy movie. It's more about the characters. So the movie begins just before the turn of the 20th century in in Russia, a Jewish cantor, I think he's like a rabbi who who does the the singing. Uh, <laughs> he gets uh, gets murdered by kind of this, what is like a like a coup that's that like the czar is a pogrom, uh, which is basically yeah. like a, a purging of the Jews. Yeah, he gets he gets killed. His wife and young son uh, escape, immigrate to New York City, and basically we see just a tiny slice of life of the the subsequent four generations down the male line of this family every single one of them is a musician in some way either you know a vaudeville act or a jazz pianist or a psychedelic rocker or just like kind of a a punk rocker type of guy uh kind of down the line uh so they kind of have we see their trials and tribulations uh as sort of um disenfranchised folks and uh we they each kind of have varying levels of musical talent that we get to see various levels of success uh and various levels of success as far as absolving themselves of the sins of their fathers and that's basically it we get to see uh america sort of mature over the course of about 80 years of american history but um we don't see a whole lot of american history to be honest in this movie it is more is sort of a tunnel vision about just kind of this one type of experience. I think mm. my history of this movie, I don't remember when I first watched this movie or why to the best of my recollection, I was maybe 14, 15, 16 years old, somewhere in there, uh, which was about 20 years now for those keeping track. <laughs> um, I'd watched, I had been obsessed with Peter Jackson's the Lord of the Rings trilogy and uh, found out that there was an animated version of it that had come out in the 70s and decided to watch it because I was just starving for more The Lord of the Rings content after watching those movies a bunch of times, reading the books. And I watched Bakshi's The Lord of the Rings and thought it was kind of bad, but like very, very magnetic. Like I, I don't even, it's like the exact opposite of Miami Connection where it's like, you know, my Miami Connection is like sort of, poorly made in conventional terms but it's just like wonderful in spirit i thought the lord of the rings was like very interestingly made but sort of uh you know a a dearth of spirit i was like well what else did did this you know director make and uh came across american pop right after that and liked it a lot more than the lord of the rings but still didn't ever really love it It it's always one of those movies that is uh i think still it, it doesn't 
it doesn't do a great job of inviting you to like it, really. Uh, we could talk about why. But uh, I always thought it was so unique and just interesting and a movie that I recommend that people watch because it doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And like Bakshi doesn't really get talked about nearly enough just considering how unique of a career he had. Um, and so uh, I chose this movie because... Uh, it's a movie that I have complex feelings about, neither good nor bad, or somewhere in the middle, or maybe both. And uh, I suspected that you might as well. And uh, it's a movie that even if it isn't beloved by many, uh, it is still a very unique beast with a lot to chew on. And uh, I think there's no denying that. So I thought we'd have a lot to discuss. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're not wrong about it. I have deeply mixed feelings on both sides about this thing, um, which actually I would say is uh, a testament to it in the end. Um, but yeah, I, I knew about Bakshi kind of from the same thing that you were saying is via Lord of the Rings. Also really, really liked those movies growing up with super into the books and everything Lord of the Rings. So I heard that there were, you know, previous adaptations, but then I heard it was bad. So in my mind, I was like, oh, I don't want to taint lord of the rings with a bad mm -hmm. version of it so i i tend to stay away from it um, but that name ralph bakshi has like this kind of uh weirdo in the 70s kind of guy with like a very yeah particular style that i associate very closely with the 70s um with that kind of like a little too realistic style of animation um but i uh yeah, and I never really like got around to watch him. You know, I like animation. I like watching adult animation. I don't know why I took so long to finally get around to him until we picked American Pop. And um, yeah, it's it's an it's a funky one. It's a weird entry point for him uh, because you know, I, I American Pop kind of feels like uh, something like you know Scorsese's Irishman or The Fablemans or something like that, where it sort of. Um, your knowledge of his previous body of work really enhances uh, yeah. your appreciation for the, the current body or the current uh, film. So I felt like I was missing some stuff. So I actually went back and I watched Lord of the Rings too, just to get a little context. Um, but did you think I, the Lord of the Rings was bad? I didn't. It was good that I knew that was only going to be half. Um, and I think I forgave it for a lot of things because I knew they were trying to do half of the Lord of the Rings, the whole trilogy in two hours. Right, right, right. But even still it was like, yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, if I had to make choices on what gets all crammed into two hours of Lord of the Rings adaptation, where you do the whole fellowship and half of the two towers, like, yeah, this is about it. I would say that's just a bad idea from the get go. Kind of like making the Hobbit into three movies. <laughs> Ooh. Saying we should do, we should force ourselves to do the entire Hobbit trilogy. I have not watched them since they were in theaters. I have, I've watched the first one, I think all of it. The second one, uh, I watched half of it or so before falling asleep, and that was in the theater. <laughs> um, both of them, and the third one, I just didn't bother with. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, there was something, some. Uh, slavish obligation that I had to go check it out. Yeah, <laughs> I felt that for the first one, less well, so. The first one the also because like I thought it was going to be good. I was excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same here. Um, um, but yeah, my you know I, I this was my first experience with him, and really what I would call like weirdo American uh, animation. Um, 
So I would say most of the quote-unquote strange or non-Disney style animation, especially geared towards adults, you were, weren't really seeing that until like, I don't know, the 90s, the 2000s, when it was really raising up. And Bakshi is kind of like this weird island from the you know the mid-late century, just kind of out here doing his own thing. Which, yeah, I yeah. guess we can uh, make some guesses on why it didn't catch on. Like, it caught on, I suppose. Like, you can see his legacy in... You know, some of the more experimental children's cartoons or television television cartoons, especially when adult animation like The Simpsons or something started kicking up. But it seems like most of his influences wound up in TV. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, I would say he's still sort of, uh, sort of on an island as far as a serious animator who is also a serious adult storyteller working in feature film like you see that um here and there with certain auteurs like Guillermo del Toro recently and uh Wes Anderson as well with his stop motion and Richard Linklater made a couple of very Bakshi-esque movies in the uh the early 2000s um but you never see, you know you know there isn't another example of an American auteur who only did animated feature films for adults I don't I don't think there is another example at all before or since um, it happens, you know, in Japan, as we've discussed before with Kone, who we, we talked about at length before, um, and, and others who make movies for children and movies not for children, but, you know, they're firmly, you know, they make animated movies. It happens a lot in Asia, but less so in, in the West. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, I would really like to know why well, that and is. Even in Europe too, like France has this, like think of Fantastic Planet. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's certainly more of it um, kind of coming out of the Middle East mm-hmm. and the um, kind of also like kind of the immigrant experience between parts of Europe and the Middle East as well. Yeah, um, what was it called? There's a predecessor to Aladdin. Um, I, or, or there's also one with like a white lion that was, um, I think it was a German film that was that seemed like it was pretty directly or Lion King lifted pretty directly off of it. The yeah, the U.S. Is, or the West in general, or at least the English-speaking West, is a very strange anomaly for that attitude. That if it's animated, then it must be for children. And yeah, we're still kind of in that to an extent. I mean, hell, I I don't know. It's it's fairly recently when I would take a uh, animated film with the same level of seriousness as a live-action movie, where it's like I don't know if I see an animated film, it's set for adults, serious tones. I'm like. Oh, that was uh, pretty grown up for an animated film. Yeah, yeah, and I, I still have those biases as well. Just right there, I think that like we need to assess this movie through the lens of just how radical that is, mm-hmm. and like this movie in particular. I, I'm trying to think of reasons that this couldn't have just been made as a live action movie. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and like, so what was it? What was it that um, you know that made Bakshi special? That he had to work in animation, even though he probably knew that was an uphill battle to be taken seriously and to you know get to make a lot of movies, you know, for commercial reasons as well. Yeah, because yeah, like you're saying, like making animated features already a more costly and time-consuming affair than its live-action counterpart. I mean, the only thing, especially for this one, 
there, there is a lot within like the movement and the motion of figures, uh, I mean, especially the Jimi Hendrix scene. Um, it, it just like the way to aesthetically express some of the chaos and the, the, the hullabaloo of what it's like in kind of the American underground and the music that comes from it. Um, I think animation really does uh, help. I think it's, it was kind of interesting. I mean, I know it was made for economic purposes to rotoscope, but rotoscoping for me actually kind of hinders that, uh, that sense of motion that animation is supposed to be really good at. Like anime especially is excellent at portraying motion and, uh, and that you know that's by exaggerating the figure, and you know, uh, rotoscoping completely gets rid of that. It grounds. So when people are dancing and moving around, it's not. It doesn't have that heightened sense. Yeah, and and but it still sort of uh, like reaches for it, and the result is like very uncanny. And I some might say even like off-putting. There are some bits where I'm like, oh, oh. And, yeah. but I can never tell if that's you know deliberate or not. <laughs> well, I think that some of the character designs and just the way that they, they look and the way that they speak, I think is deliberately a, uh, a little, like it's, it's deliberately um, kind of confrontational, mm, right? Mm -hmm. Like the characters themselves are confrontational and like, so is their presentation. Oh, I, yep, 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 yep. I like that. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I honestly don't know why this sort of thing hasn't, been attempted more often um like what Bakshi would talk about a lot when he was in his prime and he was making these movies was that you know he saw the thing like basically how uh the Walt Disney company had kind of monopolized the conversation uh around animation and how it was basically like you had to follow the dicta that uh, that Walt Disney was kind of created around what animation had to be and its purpose, and that there was not a lot of folks willing to challenge it, or almost nobody. Um, and so he, he would talk about how, you know, certainly like he wasn't trying to denigrate, you know, uh, like the medium as like something for children and uh, something to you know kind of express these wholesome values, but. It's, it sounded like he he liked that it was rife to be um, uh, sort of shaken up, and he mm -hmm. he kind of pounced on that idea. Or that yeah, it had its limits, and there's 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 room for more at least. And uh, so, did he hit those limits? Like, did he uh, like how successful was he at at kind of pushing? the form beyond that little box that it was in before he came along. Yeah. I mean, I think as far as style and as far as presentation or even the idea of what an animated feature can deliver, absolutely. Um, it was in stark contrast uh, to anything that uh, Disney was purporting what animation as a medium should be uh, reaching for. I, I mean, for lack of, Literally, like, I don't know, like decapitating a mouse in the middle of this movie. I mean, it's perfectly anti-Disney. Um, you know, the, the the images are grotesque. There's a lot of chaos. There's um, character that far from the black and white morality of Disney films, far from the comfort that Disney films gives you, or at least that easy comfort. I think, yeah, that he really pushes back against this. And it's kind of interesting, too, to go that when he's rising, because this is sort of a dearth for Disney right now, like, they don't really, 
there's the classical golden age in the middle of the 20th century, and they don't really come back to their status as we know it until about the Little Mermaid, the late 80s. So this is kind of a lull in Disney's stranglehold over the market. Uh, so maybe there is something to be said about uh, right place, right time um, for yeah. someone like Bakshi. Yeah. And um, yeah, I guess uh, it, it was just, uh, you know, like half a decade later that uh, the Little Mermaid happened and Disney has basically just been on a, uh, just been on a, a, a bender in that the 35 years, 36 years since um, like they uh, yeah, haven't, haven't really slowed down. And uh, even as far as just the animated studio side of things goes, yeah, there's still the kind of a dominant voice. I've said, I've said this so many times, my three-year-old daughter, uh, her, her favorite toy that she's ever had in her life is the song, let it go. <laughs> And Frozen is the movie that I've seen the most times in my life. And I saw it for the first time like a year ago. <laughs> uh, and yeah, again, uh, maybe uh, maybe someday soon people will uh, will stop kind of flocking to, to Disney movies to such the extent that they kind of put the brakes a little bit on the, on the output on the animated side. Maybe more adults will go to the movie theaters to see, uh, to see, you know, adult oriented or R rated animated stories again. Maybe not. Probably not. But yeah, I was like, um, I don't see much signs of that suddenly happening in the American yeah. landscape. And, and and especially now with with you know just the the advent of accessible kind of even consumer level computer assisted means of making movies, especially even animated movies. Um, I, I don't think nowadays there's any shortage um, of <clears throat> excuse me, of adult-oriented animation. You know, obviously on television, it's, it's it's streaming, it's way bigger, but even like feature-length films, there's a ton out there that, you know, you know wouldn't get wide theatrical releases, no. um, but they well, still... Of, what is it, last year Flea came out? And that was definitely uh, animation for adults. Yeah, certainly. Um, recently, uh, this guy, uh, Morgan Galen King... Uh, came out with this movie, The Spine of Night, mm. that was kind of based on his short film uh, Exordium, that sort of a proof of concept for The Spine of Night, but it is in the Bakshi mold aesthetically. Like the mm. rotoscoping on it is very much the like extreme rotoscoping, where like most of the animation is done that way. Did you and, see uh, just in your general Bakshi research that uh, Kanye West is a big fan? Uh, back oh well yeah i mean i've i've seen the video for heartless by kanye <laughs> west which is probably probably the biggest sign of like the movie american pop enduring oh yeah is yeah. that is that it's not even like the heartless video isn't even just like it's not even just like a backsheet homage it's an american pop homage right um and yeah i mean there's there's some of that here and there um of actually even more recently than that um and probably and seen by a lot of people was the guardians of the galaxy christmas special or holiday mm. special rather on disney plus had a rotoscoped segment that james gunn specifically said was was meant to conjure bakshi rotoscoping um and and even before that there's a scene in one of the guardians of the galaxy movies where it's like star lord's uh mom kind of getting uh courted by by kurt russell's character and it's like in, in a cornfield he's wearing this like red leather jacket 
Um, and, it, and it literally conjures American pop, like specifically. Yeah, there, I mean, there's there's some uh, some traces of of the like specific ins- like you know inspiration or just kind of the lineage here for sure, mm-hmm. but uh, not not a whole lot of uh, like paradigm shifting legacy that you know like a an American auteur making animated films for adults yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't another person who's dedicated it get it dedicated themselves to it in the last yeah, he's kind of century. he's kind of one of one yeah which uh again makes his movies unique but all that having been said what did you think of the movie like did did you like it did you not yeah because this one it's there's like Kind of as we've been talking about there, we're, we're, we've been talking more about the history and the context and the production of it. And it's kind of the things all outside of the frame. Um, yeah. Now we're going to talk about what's inside the frame. Um, and yeah, this one's kind of unusual because what's outside of the frame is so integral to what you're watching. And like what this film was as a cultural artifact in 1981, not only as a piece of animation that's pushing back against uh, the current media landscape, but also just a flash in the pan of what did an American story look like in 1981, where I actually, I mentioned it in the essay that I wrote too. Like I I make a a slight uh, quip about Forrest Gump, but there, you know, there's, there's a whole host of like these uh, intergenerational or not intergenerational. eh, I guess Forrest Gump kind of is, but these like almost folk stories of, figures or connected characters or one character in the case of Gump uh, running through major events of American history and especially 20th century American history because our history has been so protracted or, or we learn so much about the minutia of such uh, a century, um, which makes sense because this is the, cent- or the 20th century was kind of the century when the U.S. went from, uh, you know, a burgeoning power to the most powerful thing that's ever existed on the planet ever. Uh, so it's something to be that we're clearly quite proud of, especially 20th century history. I mean, yeah, Forrest Gump's a big one. I mean, another one, it's a weird one that really just has my heart is Benjamin Button is another good example mm-hmm. of that. Um, yeah. But there's just all sorts of family sagas that uh, you see in uh, uh, Mice and Men, I guess is a smaller version of that. Um, or wait, no, East of Eden, sorry. Mice and Men? No, not Mice and Men. East of Eden. Um, but yeah, just the story of the, the immigrant family showing up in them uh, working their way through the you know the new world and working their way up and the trials yeah. and tribulations. We're, I mean, that's the Godfather right there too. Yeah, exactly. Like having a, an outsized influence on the trajectory of just kind of like American society. Yeah, yeah. It's like this weird inverted great man theory of history where it's yeah. like, well, it wasn't actually some great man. It was like this funny dude from Alabama that just like yeah. fought. Yeah, even yeah, and even it goes, like there will it goes, be blood has that. To yeah, it. and it feeds into like our our tradition of like tall tales and folk stories and things like that that we we've, we've pretty much had since you know we were colonies. But then, so that's really interesting to me because there's two sides to that: it being a snapshot of the American story in 1981. So Reagan takes office in '82. Uh, no, he so he won the election in eighty, took office in eighty one. So this movie was made before he was elected, but it was released after he took office. Mm. But yeah, that to say, like the what we understand of the eighties is about to really kick off, and we're on the tail end of the seventies, which is like this kind of uh, lull or stalling after uh, the radical sixties. 
Um, and you see some of Bakshi's commentary on uh, what he thinks the last couple, well, pretty much what he thinks about the last 90 some odd years. And you see his interpretation of them. And it, it's very, it's very, very true to him. Like I, I sense nothing but authenticity in his, in how he feels about these things. But in, in this like very raw sense of sincerity, you know, you see the good, the bad and the ugly in how he views the American project and, and how he views those who succeeded and those who didn't succeed within the American project. Um, so while I have problems with his interpretation of what 20th century American history is, then at the same time, I praise him for really challenging the norms on what animation is. The movie can be, that can be, both of those things can easily be true and uh, not uh, contradict each other. And I, I'm kind of with you there. Like, I think the what you wrote about just kind of pointing out that the movie specifically kind of touches on these just kind of trajectory altering events. So like you specifically mentioned how the the wife of the cantor who who was killed in Russia, she is killed in the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire in 1911 in Manhattan. You know, the movie doesn't have the bandwidth to explore like the like what that means as far as like a takedown of capitalism and, and putting profits before people and and you know all these things that are part of the American identity like an important part of the American identity it sort of just has to brush all the way past them yeah where like, quickly yeah, I agree. Because, like it's you know it's not every movie's job to take on the historical forces of the time but this but it, one charges it, itself to. Yeah, like it didn't have to put in a real life event and then just decide not to comment on it. Um, it right. it kind of treats the shirtwaist factory fire as like, oh, an unfortunate incident, and now we're moving on. You know, was, right? That's life. It's tough. Like some of us are winners, some of us are losers. I'm like, Ugh. I don't know if a whole factory going down is just kind of uh, oh, brush the dirt off. That's just well, no, them's the brakes, kids. I mean, it's and it's not even just. I mean, it's not even just like a factory going down. Like I, I believe that even to this day, that the the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire is the like the deadliest unnatural disaster in American history. Pretty sure. Yeah, I believe it, still it. is. And it's something that like when they were bringing that up, it, I was wondering if that was the trajectory that we we're going to go because, um, and that was something actually I didn't even bring up in my essay too. Is uh. It, yeah, it's hard to parse out, whereas um, this film just keeping a narrow focus and keeping it focused on, you know, these particular men and these particular time and their particular experiences. And in doing that, that does purposely limit their perspective. So I know that they're, they're not responsible for taking uh, a whole kaleidoscopic viewpoint of the states. But then again, if you're going to do about a 90-year run of American pop music and you don't see a single black figure have a single bit of characterization or internality or anything other than just being in the background dancing or playing music, it's like, what What do you think American pop music was for the last 90 years? It's um, just like, like to call it racist is almost redundant. It's just wrong. It's incorrect. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the, I mean, that's another strong indicator of this friction that the movie has between sort of charging itself to be uh, responsible for these societal themes 
but that's kind of going up, but like it's going up against this like microcosm of this one family. And the movie doesn't do a good job of deciding which one it cares about. Yeah. And, and, and since it doesn't, it would need like three hours, not an hour right. and a half to actually tangle with that. And that's uh, where I don't sense ill will. I don't sense overt bigotry or omission on Bakshi. No, um, I mean, Bak Bakshi was, you know, he's the, he's the son of, well, no, he, he himself was a, is a Jewish immigrant in you know coming up in the early 20th century in New York. Uh, uh, and he is a successful artist, you know, even though uh, he uh, was essentially uh, uh, like a street kid, you know, going to like very, very underprivileged, underfunded schools. Like he kind of witnessed all this stuff for himself mm -hmm. and he sort of expressed his, uh, his point of view on it a lot through his, through his early movies, especially yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think he's responsible for really showing the uh, just reality of who was contributing to you know all of these artistic movements. But it is it is at the same time, like you said, just shitty and incorrect not to. And it's I think it's especially uh, just unfortunate that basically the movie ends like what like three years or so after like Grandmaster Flash. Uh, you know, kind of became a prominent figure in, in New York. And so like this movie was made knowing that hip hop exists, but not, but, but unfortunately too early to know that just how monumental of an impact of Amer in American and pop culture it would have. You can almost feel this movie getting old <laughs> as the time yeah. moves forward. Like yeah, you see the you kids can. sitting there watching TV and you see, you know, the beatnik uh, protagonist, like, you uh, dumb zombies just sitting there brainless watching the, your television all day. It's like I, I hear my grandfather saying that, not a, 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 a cool, per, like, hip beatnik, you know? Yeah. I, I, I do like the scene you're talking about, though, because it's what they're watching is their grandfather mm. uh, testifying uh, against, like, his old, like, mob boss buddy. Right, right. And in uh, the... Is his name Tony? Anyway, the the kind of beatnik later, like kind of psychedelic heroin addicted rocker. He's he's calling his 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 grandfather a fucking rat, and he's just basically like he's kind of yelling at his little siblings to like turn the, turn the shit off because it makes mm -hmm. him sick to watch it. But but yeah, no, I I hear you. Like uh, very uh, it, it shows its its age quite a bit already but you Which, know it is it is 40 something years old well and that, that's also old. part of its charm is that it is unabashedly what it is um where i would say a much worse version of this would be someone who's deeply deeply concerned about how it's going to look for preservation so they're always making sure every viewpoint and every right. line and every aesthetic choice is like the quote-unquote correct or cleanest or or most appropriate one where it's this one's just, it's an honest expression of a very imperfect person, as we are all. Right. Um, and I'll so, take that, know, yeah, 10 times out of 10 over a sanitized Disney movie. 100%. But I, I do hear that point of, like, you have, like, a jazz pianist character and, mm. like, no black characters. Like, with, Well, that's with, what I'm like, saying. It's, like, it's not only kind of racist. It's just, it's just wrong. It's just a, a, incorrect. <laughs> Well, they don't they don't really explore the jazz scene in this movie. We go straight from like vaudeville, we fast Which is forward. already a weird omission. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like we fast forward, like the jazz pianist character just immediately goes off to World War II and gets killed by the Germans. Mm-hmm. We don't really get to see like American jazz happening. We don't get to see the jazz, like jazz happening in this movie. We just know that like there's this pianist character who's good at playing jazz. He goes off and gets killed before we learn much about him at all. Um, but yeah, like when, but then we totally brush past like rock and roll entirely. Like there isn't like this, the, the generations didn't, didn't quite line up where, you know, we don't really have a character in like the fifties or early sixties uh, playing rock and roll. We go straight to like, you know, this kind of like psychedelic sort of beat poet type of guy. Yeah. And so it's so bizarre, especially given the context of these are immigrant New Yorkers. Um, so it's not like they're living in like milk toast, you know, comfortable white high society or something. They're, they're clearly showing them on the streets with all the, the diversity and chaos and, and uh, polyglot culture that's going on down there. And to just like brush over the fact yeah, it's weird that they're just like perpetually latched. Well, actually, it's not weird that they're perpetually latched on to like mainstream white culture, and and that's it's fine to portray that. But then it portrays it ultimately as like this was a good idea that they did this, that they threw their lot in with uh with all of the I don't know the the propagandized American values of the time. Um, they it eventually like it took a few generations, but it, they 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 got their American dream because they put their work in and they got their bootstraps pulled and uh, off they go. And so can you one day kid. Yeah. The movie just very abruptly ends with the great, great grandson landing a record contract, playing, playing, you know, badass music with Bob, like a Bob Seger song in front of a, like arena full of people, which yeah, even the scene, like, you're you're a little more close, directly close to the music industry than I was, but I know a good handful of people from where I lived in Nashville. Like, that's not how you get discovered at any point. That's not that's not how it works. That's a it's a myth, a sort of myth that like uh, the pop industry likes to. It's a story that likes to be propagated where it's like if you just have a dream and talent, you just got to go out and get it. And any day now, you can get discovered and you'll be huge yeah. it's like no this well, is a business it's a machine they know what they're doing well you know in the movie's defense he he gets discovered because he threatens to cut off the cocaine supply to the record label <laughs> yeah, if they I mean, don't listen to silly. his listen to his music i think it's kind of like you know good for him <laughs> this, this is a fan this is a their family, uh, by the way, like even back, like back from the the second generation that we see, the the son of the cantor, uh, yeah, they're they're in the drug trade, all the way back when you know uh, illicit drugs, were, like booze, were illicit was illicit drugs. So like they uh, they do have this family dynasty of music, but also you know selling illegal. Oh, and it's kind substances. of funny because it's all shown as. I wouldn't say positive, but it's shown in at least a, uh, a sexy. Just- Sexy light, like, with the exception of the sixties, I would say that's of the only era. time. Yeah, yeah, we, we do it. see like a tragic heroin overdose. Yeah, and and I think that's very telling for uh, what I'm saying about like Bakshi's worldview, where um, for all of his radical aesthetics, I think his uh, ideas on like what the U.S. is and what where it should be heading and what's making it like what's making it strong and what weaknesses are are very conservative because he seems to be totally fine 
with all the drug running in the early 20th century, um, all the way up to the 20s and the Great Depression and Prohibition. And he seems to be totally fine with, you know, the, the cocaine epidemic that was kicking up. Well, specifically the cocaine epidemic. This isn't crack, keep in mind. This is cocaine um, that was going yeah. on in the 80s. But the one drug craze that he uh, wanted to show as bad and destroying lives was the hippie movement in the 60s. Which is well, like the one of all of those, I would say the one like the one drug culture that that was displayed that has any sort of anti-capitalist sentiments behind it. The rest well, of them are all extremely they're they're enterprising entrepreneurs. Well, I mean, he's still fondly kind of look looking back on like you know psychedelics and cannabis and stuff. It's not until they start to like you know sh shoot junk into their arms that he starts to wag his finger. Yeah, and it's That's not to say that, of course, you know, uh, don't kids don't do heroin or meth. Uh, anti heroin and meth podcast. Do uh, all of the other drugs though. Yeah, please. well, not well, every single one other than heroin or meth, but we'll we'll update that list later. At least for now, no heroin. Yeah, and meth. do most of the other ones besides heroin and meth though. Yeah, we'll 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 be sure to amend that as we go. Um, the other ones, which I mean the. There are, you know, cocaine overdoses are a real thing. The, the the ravages of alcohol are no joke either. But those aren't ever shown for their. It's actually their bloody underside, at least with prohibition, is shown. But yeah, it's it's cool. It's fun. It's sexy. It's it's chaotic. Yeah, right? I mean, it's just the class. The classic prohibition gangster, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, and, and he Tom, does have like, guns and long coats. Throughout most of the film, he is aping the the cinematic tropes of the time to very uh. To very high level success of success. Yeah, and actually, I, I do appreciate that a lot about the movie too. Actually, is uh, there is a little bit of a history of film in the movie that goes along with the music. Like, I really, uh, I never, when I was a teenager, I never really appreciated how the movie begins with like in the style of a silent picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With like just like a piano score and you know dialogue cards that come up and it. Uh, you know, it quickly after that really ratchets itself up to this like kaleidoscopic mishmash of different visual styles. But the first like five minutes of the movie is really grounded in like this is a silent film uh, until like after that, it really uh, goes into like warp speed and it's like hand drawn background, rotoscoped actors, like stock footage that just happens here and there. Uh, stills where the camera will like zoom in and out and, and explore the still. So it's still moving. Um, and just like, you know, a lot of really vibrant, almost like pastel colors here and there. And yeah, I, I do really like that. Actually the juxtaposition of like just the vibrancy of the, the aesthetic itself kind of against the pretty dirty narrative. There there's, there's a, a kind of a cool, conflict between like kind of what we're like what we're seeing and how we're seeing it sometimes yeah and yeah and i think that's well like we said we've been praising the style uh, this whole time um is that the the style is perfectly matched to this uh story that is centered around uh pop music and the uh you know the the, the multiculturalism of the U.S. and the immigrant story and the fish out of water and that disorientation and all these things are swirling together in the aesthetic itself with, you know, you have colors are, or backgrounds are always distorted and uh, you have this weird, grotesque, uncanny valley 
alley with the, the the human figures and everything just feels off and uh, unsettled and and not uh, nothing you can quite put your hands on, which is so appropriate for you know a nation that's pretty young at the time, especially at the start, and it's still really finding its footing on what it is, anyways, because it's just full of immigrants at this point. We only, we had only really locked in the fact that we were going to stay one country in 1865, and that was uh, at the start of this movie like 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's fair. Um, I, I think uh, that is a good segue into a question that you had. Is it effective or like, is it potentially effective? Like, I, I personally don't think it was effective in this movie, but is it potentially effective to like tell like such a, uh, like a broad, like long story as, you know, here's what 20th century America is just using popular music. Like I, I personally think that the answer to that is yes. Like there's a lot of potential there, but not in 85 minutes. Yeah. That's, that's not too far off from my same answer is um, that. Yeah, it certainly can be done. And it's certainly, uh, it's something that has been done. I mean, I've seen observation uh, people, we do, uh, you know, cultural understandings of moments for music all the time. So it's a very, uh, a useful lens to look at like what was what was it like to live in these times so yeah if you string them together over a long period of time you got yourself a movie yeah i agree it it's tough to make it 90 minutes and if you're gonna make it 90 minutes my god you've got to keep it tight um and yeah this one which is sort of i understand the point that he was bringing in all these outside th- threads and themes and focuses because you know, that's what he was trying to convey. It's like, that's how it felt to be in 20th century America, where it's chaos, it's, it's things are disrupted, they are uh, discontinuous, there's there's no uh, base or root to fall back on anymore, and this is how it feels. Which, I mean, I think he captures that in moments, but then to make a satisfying narrative, it's just kind of, you kind of can't have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, exactly. Well, not at this length. And, no, yeah, you need another and, half hour or so, or you need to cut it into like installments or something. Yeah. And that is one of the things that I do actually like about this movie, though, are the 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 moments that breathe. Like he invests mm-hmm. quite a bit of screen time into moments that pause the action and just um try to be more evocative of of like a feeling or a a kind of like a heaviness so like the ones that stick out to me the most are the scene where the the son kind of the the first uh kind of american generation he is he is a like a vaudeville singer he goes off to world war one gets shot in the throat uh comes back unable to sing so he becomes a clown in like basically kind of a still like a vaudevillian type of setting and uh, he, he decides he wants to, like, you know, ask uh, one of the, the dancer lady dancers out on the stage, uh, like, out, out. Uh, and, you know, she's the one that becomes the mother of his child. That's and, not like, what he, he was asking at first. That was not his first request. Yeah, no, he's, he, I mean, I mean, he wanted to hook up, but, like, you know, he's, like, <laughs> he, like, he, like, is dressed in this, like, really just, like, silly like patchwork kind of clown costume yeah, like, straight like bozo the clown looking yeah and he like slowly removes all of his accoutrement and uh uh it's like 
sexy in like a really bizarre way. But yeah, I'm no, like, there, there's I'm, something real sweet I'm, about I'm, it. I'm confident in saying that it is really sweet and sexy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's one of the only times where the players are not uncannily grotesque in one way or another. Like it literally is just like you know, it's really pretty. Um, I really like that moment. It lasts way too long, and I love it. The <laughs> other one that really comes to mind that I think, if you polled like people that like this movie, the the moment that they would uh, point at the most fondly is the World War II sequence, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where the grandson, who's a aspiring jazz pianist, he goes off to fight the Germans. He's like right in the middle of just occupied Germany, bombed out buildings everywhere. He he uh, seeks shelter in one, finds a piano, decides that, you know, it's worth the risk to play the piano, plays the piano, is unaware that there's a German soldier in there with him who just gets enraptured by his music. And like, like you know, we've got the pianist just playing this lovely tune. The German soldier just completely caught up in it, loving it, just vibing. He stops playing the piano. German soldier just says, Danke, and then fucking obliterates him with his machine gun and the piano mm-hmm. and uh it, it's like several minutes and uh it's uh it's a pretty good just emblem of the movie itself but uh oddly enough like one of the really the most violent most kind of sobering moments is also one of the most beautiful and it, they take their time with it and there's a few more of those for sure yeah. but that is the one where it's like i think that's the most memorable part of the whole movie yeah no I, yeah i agree um the yeah the 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 pauses in this like breakneck pace are, are interesting too, actually. And one of the ones that I, I found particularly like it was, it was a weird breather in the middle. It was a little more extended is when he goes from New York to Kansas. And uh, while there, there are plenty of bits where I was like, Oh my God. Okay. Yeah, fine. You, you met some girl for five minutes and she just can't resist you. Oh, and you're uh, first off, I've never hated New York accents worse than watching this movie. <laughs> um, yeah, especially that character. Oh Kansas is corny. God, it's so bad. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, it's a little, no pun intended, corny that, you know, he fucks her once and then the his he uh, impregnates her and has a kid and meets the kid later in the movie. I kind of roll my eyes at that a little bit. Takes him, takes him home. Oh They're peas in a pod. Yeah. Um, that, that was a yeah. little Forrest Gump cutesy for me right there. But other than that, like just that kind of, you know, it, it, it sort it really mirrored like an on the road kind of Jack Kerouac's kind of thing, which was very much mm-hmm. of its cultural moment. Um, yeah. Clearly it's intentional. Yeah. Like, literally yeah, yeah. that, that specific reference. Um, which that is kind of telling too about maybe why I'm, I'm not quite as sucked into Bakshi's world is I hated that book. <laughs> I absolutely hated that book. I thought it was terrible. Um, so the, the kind of romanticism of the beatniks just doesn't have much to do with me. And then the the subsequent uh, cynicism that comes from the failure of the movement of the beatniks that you see in his attitude in this film too. Like it's, Neither one just kind of really scratches my itch, I suppose. Yeah, I hear you. Um, oh man, speaking of like the just the cringy accents, the part the move part of this movie that makes just makes my skin crawl is like the very end and just the way that the final guy is presented and his voice and like his demeanor and his jacket, where he's mm. like, "You don't get coke. <laughs> you don't listen to my song." 
<laughs> just like the way he moves and the way he speaks is just so off-putting to me where it's like there was was it possible that Bakshi thought that the audience would like these guys no right like he wasn't trying to make like no well yeah i think he didn't care if they were likable or unlikable he's just saying these are this is what people are like in these sorts of spaces yeah and maybe they were it's long before i was born <laughs> yeah uh there, there's not a lot of likable characters in the movie at all yeah and that, and, that's fine to for me um, well okay okay they can be there's not there's not like it's not even just that they're like not likable as people they're not likable as people but they're not likable as characters oh i see like they're they're not they're not complete enough they're not interesting enough like we get the impression that they are complicated people but as soon as there's like a chink in the armor and we start to see more layers the movie just moves on mm. um like we don't get to know really like what motivates these people other than like i assume the fame and wealth and kind of uh self-actualization that would come with being a successful musician yeah see that's that's i think an underlying theme behind the film that ultimately bothers me is like that's that's what's going to complete the, the character arc of this entire family is oh someone made it so now they're fulfilled uh, uh movie over kids high five he made it yeah it could have used another 10 to 15 minutes to, to see if he really made it because I don't know. I'd see that guy. I could, I still see that guy dead in the gutter in like six months. Oh yeah. Potentially. For sure. Wait for a uh, side note. Can you, is that car alarm audible? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be in the recording. It's been going for like the last two minutes. You know, it, it's kind of it's kind of giving the impression of like the the New York City streets. I, I was thinking too. It's like welcome to the chaos, a big city to live in. Yeah, we've got a bark. We got a barking dog. We've got a car alarm going off. Hey, I'm walking here. Hey, hey I'm driving here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th this is how you can tell we're doing it live here, folks, just for you. But yeah, like you know, I I don't think that the the writing in the movie is particularly strong. Like I I don't think that the the voice acting is particularly strong, um, but I still just love the the production around it and kind of what, you know, just the, the big swings of just the fact that these movies were even made is is just so rad. Like Bakshi's first movie was Fritz the Cat, it's this X-rated movie about anthropomorphic animals in New York City who... Uh, uh, you know, are uh, host to all manner of racial stereotypes that Bakshi just blew up to like kind of point at their absurdity. And uh, it was made for like $600,000 or something. And it made $90 million in 1971 as an X-rated animated movie. And it Absurd. basically, it basically just bankrolled five or six more movies in the next decade that he got to make after that. So he was basically playing with like unbridled access to make whatever the fuck he wanted because he took that gigantic swing right at the beginning and just fucking knocked it out of the park. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, you know, even though this movie is incredibly rough around its edges, it is still like singular of vision 
And uh, honestly, whether or not I like that vision is irrelevant compared to the fact that it existed. Yeah, and it kind of, um, eh, let's, we'll skip a little, no, we'll say, we'll say Miami Connection for later, but I was going to say that seemed like Miami Connection. It's kind of the problem of the film industry, and especially the animation industry as, as a whole, where these are products, they cost money, they are prohibitively expensive. So you, uh, and that's sort of what Bakshi is pushing back against, where it's like the only safe bets were Disney-style animation. So you wouldn't get, uh, or it'd be very, very rare to get the investment for uh, a auteur-led, singularly visioned, X-rated adult animation feature. So yeah, he kind of had to fund himself here because no one else was going to do it. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, so he he got the funding based on the success of his first movie, well, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But but you know, I think what you're describing though uh, is true outside of animation at the same time. Oh, like, just in the kind of, art is, industry, period. Well, or in, in movies in general, like the '70s was like the rise of the auteur, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm, I just, see. Like there there are wild graphic, uh, you know, visionary movies out the ass in in live yeah, action I mean, in this time hell i mean american pop and felix the cat i mean they have a lot of connective tissue with like early scorsese movies yeah 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 yeah. that's what we'll talk about uh next week is the the, the paul schrader and ralph bakshi connection oh we will have to won't we we will yeah because i think there's plenty oh yeah Oh yeah, there's um, a lot of uh, sin and guilt and redemption going yeah. on. But um, before before we kind of move on from this this general line of thought, though, um, I do want to say that like while I think it was possible and uh, uh, a reasonable thing to attempt to kind of tell the story of the 20th century through music, I am 100 percent confident that that will not be possible with the 21st century. Was that? Um, there's no music of the moment. There just isn't anymore. Like there, hmm. we're so far beyond the point where everybody is listening to the same music. Like oh, it, at least, yeah, at least, okay, at least even in at least even in pockets. Like the availability of uh, and just like the the low barrier for entry of like how the volume of music that's out there being just doesn't need to be distributed because it's just everywhere automatically. As soon as the artist is done making it. Yeah. There's, there's, it's just, there's too much. Like, there oh yeah. It's like the idea unifying... of monoculture is gone. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or I think I, I touched on that in the essay too, where, you know, when you have uh, for better or for worse, um, when you have more of a top down version of production when it comes to what music gets produced what films get produced uh what sort of art or tv or messaging gets made it's made from on high and sent down it's much more siloed like we have the studio system at the time uh, as a good example for film and um you know the only way that you have to consume art is you turn on the radio or you buy a record or you you uh you go to a or at least mass art yeah it's the film for film it's the theater and for music it's the radio so and there's only a very limited amount of space for these so there'd only be so many coming out at a time so there'd be less options and it created like what you're saying like music for the moment there was something that everybody kind of to some way shape or form knew about and understood and had cultural 
multiple touch points with where, you know, with the rise of the internet and now with a much more bottom up, I mean, you can make your arguments whether or not it's really bottom up or not, but more of a disseminated and uh, niche uh, version of appealing to markets. Um, yeah, you're right. There is no, I mean, what's the song of, if I even looked at the Billboard top 100 song for, let's go a few years back, because, you know, you can never know what the music of the moment is in your own moment. So, what, it's 2023. So, let me, uh, the number one song of 2013, let me look that up. Uh, 2013. I don't know what that would be. Uh, <laughs> Thrift Shop by Macklemore. That's what would be playing in a, uh, in a backstreet version that went up to 2013. <laughs> you got thrift, thrift shop, thrift, you got blurred lines, you got radioactive, and you got the Harlem Shake. Yeah, ha probably happy by Pharrell around the same time. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I get reminded of a comment that Weird Al made. Like his last, his last proper album came out in like 2013, 2014, and he said he basically can't make albums anymore because they're it's it'll be years and years and years until he can compile a collection of songs that have captured the zeitgeist enough for to warrant a parody yeah, um that, that is so interesting and and that's kind of funny that music because that's not the case of film at all right now uh no or or television like we still have appointment television where it's like monday morning everyone is talking about the last of us right yeah tv and, like, i would still say is a little well. less than its syndicated predecessors where right. because we have so many options on streaming, you can kind of bounce around a little more. But there are still, you know, these marquee events like uh, Game of Thrones is certainly an example yeah. of that. The Last of Us, I'm sure, is an example. There's becoming an example of that. But there's nothing like, I don't know, like the finale of Friends or something of that nature. Um, I, think, I think that's over just because of the nature of production. But it is interesting to think about how movies are still very centralized. And there are only... Like there are a few tentpole films every year, and that's it. Yeah. Whereas music is the polar opposite. Yeah, it's just everyone likes different shit, and uh, they can get as much of it as they want. Ah. And uh, even folks that are very well rounded, it's like they're not gonna like every, you know, number one Billboard song. Um, yeah, like you don't really have as many mega stars musically as we used to. Like we've got. Taylor Swift and Drake and Ed Sheeran and Adele and like Bad Bunny. We got like the K-pop artists and that sort of thing, but it's like still like their fan bases are relatively small compared to say Michael Jackson in 1983. Yeah. It's, yeah I don't know what to make of that. I mean, it's, you know, it's the, uh, the evolution of what fandom even means now compared to the eighties with Michael Jackson, where, yeah, it seems like more people or a higher percentage of people probably recognize the name Michael Jackson, a couple of fans, but there was a lower amount of people who were like, you know, diehard fans where now it's like to be a fan means you have to be the fanniest fan. And yeah, you got to be a Swifty or a Belieber. And that kind of goes back to, you know, or, consumer culture where it's like to be a fan, that means you have to out consume the product of that, that fandom above other people. Yeah. Um, but just like, uh, I'll just like list off some of the names of musicians whose songs are featured in American. Oh, pop this is very interesting. Of how did it, this guy get all these songs? And it's it's dizzying. So we've got like Rodgers and Hammerstein, 
Scott Joplin, George Gershwin, Cole Porter. Uh, moving moving on, there's like multiple Gershwin songs, and but then you get into like multiple Do- Bob Dylan songs, multiple multiple Herbie Hancock songs, the Mamas and the Papas, California Dreamin'. Uh, co- yeah, I said a couple Bob Dylan songs. We got People Are Strange by The Doors. We got Purple Haze by Hendrix. We've got uh, a Lou Reed song. We've got Pat Benatar, uh, The Sex Pistols, Bob Seger, Heart. Uh, we got Freebird by Leonard Skinner in here. I I think I missed a couple of like major ones, but it's like these are these are like artists and songs that are like still household names, right? Mm-hmm. Or like things that that you know even like young folks would recognize. And uh, yeah, I don't see a movie, you know, uh, fifty years from now, um, featuring you know a list of like thirty songs where you know teenagers then will recognize all of them yeah that's that's funny to say is like okay if we updated it to someone made it in 2021 instead of 1981 so bump everything 40 years up so it starts in 1930 and it ends today yeah i would struggle to that is interesting that he could make something that that featured iconic music in his own time essentially where i would have no idea what to feature because there are just so many prominent subcultures on what to even feature. Um, I don't know what a musical tour of the 21st century would look like. Oh, well, yeah. the beginning would have a lot of Creed, and that's unfortunate. Nickelback. Yeah, be... You'd have to, yeah, like American Pop made in 2023 would have to have This Is How You Remind Me by Nickelback at, at in some, some point, capacity. Yeah, one of the guys is putting his hair like this. Yeah, my little MySpace. Little, you look like you're in the band Attack Attack right now. Let's go more for, well, AFI, I guess, would be right down the middle, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Devil Lock. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, it's one thing where I'm fully willing to admit maybe I'm just <clears throat> not cool anymore. I'm just n- not privy to what the uh, the zeitgeist defining music is at the moment. Yeah. I mean, Bakshi was like in his 40s or something when he made yeah, this is, movie. Yeah, that is, but he's such a weirdo. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it's possible, though. Like, I just don't think they're like zeitgeist defining songs anymore or artists it's like there's too much uh now would you say that's a uh, good or a bad thing um i mean it's it's obviously good that it's easier for artists to get recognition and grow their little fan base and make a you know like a a a living off of music even if they're not going to be billionaires like that's awesome and like just the fact that there are more working artists now than ever before is fucking great i do think though that we are less connected to each other than we were when we had mm. a, a you know a, a narrower sc- scope as far as like tastes um go but you know what can you do that's why that's why we make podcasts so we can talk about the things that we we all like try to square the circle you know yeah exactly <laughs> um to make a wrestling ring um <laughs> yeah uh so uh, i think you know i think we covered it like I, I i would say that like this movie is not like objectively good i couldn't say it's objectively bad but it's sure as hell interesting and i think it like 
you haven't seen a Ralph Bakshi movie and you're into sort of fringe filmmaking or animation or both, then you're probably not actually into those things if you haven't been watching Ralph Bakshi movies. Um, but get on it now. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, definitely. We, uh, for all the criticism that we've been leveling, uh, this is firmly a thumbs up, give it a whirl movie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a movie that I've gone back to several times in different, you know, epics of my life. And uh, I will probably continue to do that. Call it, call it a um, problematic fave, maybe, as the kids say. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not it's not one of my very favorites, but it, it's one of the more interesting ones to show, uh, you know, fellow cinephiles who haven't seen it. And uh, I think we will probably do more Ralph Bakshi in the future uh, on this show. And we want to do <laughs> one that neither of us have seen. Maybe it's one of his early. About to be interested in his quote unquote films. urban trilogy. Yeah. Well, see you then. Yeah, this is uh, this has been a once again non-concession. Uh, I am Dan, and I'm Jared. Party on with all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that you can fit into a century. <laughs> 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 <laughs>